associate professor in the communication department, documents 30 years of theater history. Illinois passes new law to issue non-binary IDs. And an update from our co-editor-in-chief on the latest seatback vote. Go with what Columbia looks like! This is what Columbia looks like! Published since 1973. I'll give my life for this cause, and I will die for this cause. This is Chronicle Headlines. I'm Blaze Mesa, stepping in for Yasmin Shika. In 1989, when Aguijon Theater started, it was different than other theaters. But it was different because of the cultures that they showcased. Right, so anything that was Latino was, like, strange. Yeah. People didn't know what cilantro was, Yeah. you know, and then what an avocado was. That was associate professor in the communication department, Elio Leturia. He wrote the book on Aguijon Theater, literally. Leturia was asked in April to document the theater's 30-year history. The theater produces plays that are both Latino and non-Latino stories, according to co-artistic director and managing director Marcela Munoz. The plays are done entirely in Spanish, but English subtitles are displayed on stage. But I think it's important to have these places of um, artistic expression where people can come see their stories and also universal stories in which they see themselves reflected. To dive a little deeper into this story, I have news editor Catherine Savage in studio. Now, Catherine, there are subtitles on live performances. Now, how does that work? Clue me in here. Yeah, so the way they work, it's traditionally used in kind of the opera, and they project the titles onto the screen behind the actors. So everything is done in Spanish, and the titles will be on the screen in English then. Okay, so it's not like just a, a 3D projector just putting it somewhere on stage. There are screens alongside to say, okay, that kind of clear. I'm not a very big theater guy, as you can already tell. I am yeah. um, a little bit curious, though. Did any of your sources mention what it is like to try and produce plays in a different language? Yeah, Elio actually said um, a little bit. He talked about kind of producing the book in, diff- in two different languages. He said that... For the most part, it was pretty easy to translate both of them, but he had kind of a hard time because he said with the Spanish language, he wanted it to be like more rich and stuff, and translating that into English was a little bit harder, especially with some of the more like nuanced terms that he was like talking about. And that that kind of play over in the plays when you're writing, some of the, the language needs to be a little more simpler is what it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Does any of your sources happen to touch on what it's like to produce, you know, Spanish culture, Latino culture plays in Spanish in this political climate? Yeah, so um, they touched on that a little bit. They said that it could be kind of hard, especially looking at the history. Like, sometimes the Spanish culture is seen as really cool to the public eye, and they're, like, really interested in it. And other times in the political climate, it could be looked down upon a little bit more. So this theater is one of the oldest Latino theaters in Chicago, is that correct? Correct. Yeah, so then this book probably has a lot in it, but what were they trying to capture? What was Elio trying to capture when he wrote this book? Yeah, he definitely wanted a a place to be that could show all the history of the theater, especially because they didn't have, early on, it was formed in 1989, they didn't have records or anything really stating, like, the first shows, so they wanted something where they could be like, oh, we've never done Death of a Salesman, and then he could go back and say, look, we actually did it in this date. Did it touch on at all, even briefly, about maybe the founders or 
people behind the scenes in that uh, in the, the history of the theater? Yeah, it definitely talks about the founders, and then it also, with each one, talks about some of the different actors. And there's also people in there. Uh, there's 14 different testimonials from different people. Now, I know uh, Professor Latura is doing a little bit more than just, like, capturing the history of that theater. He's actually acted in some plays. Do you happen to know what plays he's acted in? Yeah, I know his first one was Death of a Salesman, and then from then I think he said he's done five other ones with them. Okay, and that was all in Spanish, wasn't it? Yeah. You know how to say Death of a Salesman in Spanish? <laughs> I don't. What did you take in high school? I took four years of French. Okay, then how do you say it in French? I also don't know. Oh, <laughs> Catherine, that's a little bit disappointing, but... Um, but Catherine, so when is the next production? Yeah, so the next production will run from October 17th to November 24th. Okay, Catherine, is there anything else you think we should know about this story? Yeah, um, Elio did a lot of work on this book. He not only wrote it and translated it in both languages, but he also uh, laid out the design for the book and also took some of the photographs that are in it as so well. So he wrote it. He did, obviously, some reporting by asking people stuff. He designed it. He took some photos. He wrote it in a different language. Yeah. Where can where can students get this book then? Right now, um, I believe that you can only buy it on the theater's website. Oh, but it is on shelves now. You can get it right now. Yep. It will be Elio's seventh appearance, and that play will be directed by Munoz, who said these productions are important for the Latino community. Again, this idea that theater is a way to bring people together um, and realizing that language could sometimes be a barrier, not just for non-Latinos, but even Latinos who maybe Spanish is not their first language, younger mm -hmm. or newer or you know, American generations, American Latinos. So we wanted to make sure that that was not an obstacle, that you could still come in and, and see the play. For additional reporting on this story, Go to ColumbiaChronicle.com or pick up a newspaper and a newsstand nearest you. That's all for this story, but stay tuned for more. ID cards always gave you two options, male or female. But the state of Illinois passed legislation to change that. Max Bever, Deputy Director of Communication at the American Civil Liberties Union of Illinois, applauded the bill. You know, I think that it really just reflects that there's a growing acceptance and understanding that gender is not binary. Illinois joins California, Colorado, Indiana, Maryland, Minnesota, Nevada, and Utah to adopt non-gender IDs. According to the Movement Advancement Project, an LGBTQ plus policy tracker, similar legislation is pending in several other states. But you won't see the change for four years. To take a better look at this story, we have staff reporter Lauren Wiesenby in the studio. Hey Lauren, thanks for coming on. Um, so can you start by telling us a little bit about your story and, you know, what's it about? Yeah, so it's about this new non-binary ID law that was recently uh, signed into law by Pritzker on August 23rd. So the new law is going to allow Illinois state residents um, to receive driver's licenses and state IDs uh, with a non-binary designation on them. Um, so where it would normally, um, or as it now says, M or F, you could typically, it would be an X um, designation now. So why did this come about? You know, do, do you know who started this? Or, you know, do you know how long people have been advocating for something like this? 
I mean, I think people have been advocating for something like this, something like this for quite a while. It's been passed in 14 other states. Um, they have a current system where, um, like I said, it's an X rather than an M or an F. But I think there have been a lot of different um, LGBTQ plus advocacy groups around Illinois who've been um, fighting for to have a, a gender neutral non-binary designation on licenses. Um, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about who you talked to in this story? Yeah. So I talked to uh, David Drucker. Um, he is the assistant to the Secretary of State, Jesse White. Uh, and he told me a little bit about the background of the the problem with this new law, which is that you by law, technically, should be able to walk into a Secretary of State office and declare on your paperwork for your license that you'd like a non-binary designation. But as of right now, that option isn't available because of a contract that the state is locked into with um, this company called IDEMIA, which is formerly called Morpho Trust. And so they signed this contract back in 2018 with this company that makes the licenses. And that was before the bill was brought up in the House, which was in like February of 2019. So they kind of <laughs> accidentally got themselves into the situation where um, they won't be able to issue licenses with non-binary designations until 2024. Um, and 2023 is when they're going to be rebidding this contract. And um, uh, Drucker told me that um, when they rebid, that this is definitely part of the requirement. So either um, IDEMIA is going to have to um, step up and be able to uh, produce licenses that have the non-binary de designation, or they're going to go with a different company who can do that. Mm -hmm. So what drew you to this story? Yeah, I, what drew me to the story was that this, it kind of seems like this thing happens a lot where change is on the books but doesn't actually happen. And this was a really, really clear example of like, this law will technically go into effect in um, January 2020, but we might not see any effect from it. We will likely not see any effect from it until 2024, which is a really long time for people who've been already waiting a really long time. Mm -hmm. So who else did you speak with for this story? Yeah, I talked to Joyce Guo, and they are the president of um, Columbia Pride, which is Columbia's LGBTQIA plus um, organization on campus, a student organization. And uh, they expressed to me that this new non-binary designation may actually do more harm than good uh, because it's going to identify um, individuals who don't um, fit inside this gender binary that society has created and maybe would make them more of a target, even though the law is meant to make them less of a target. Having an X on your license may make you more likely to experience discrimination. Now, I find this interesting because um, most people don't really acknowledge the fact that on our license we have a male-female um, designation, if you will. Um, so to have something like this, it's very different because it's more so modern. And mm -hmm. with the evolving times and the changes that we have in not only media, but like modern day living in itself, 
um, it's very interesting to have something like this. So what could we expect to see in the meantime? Yeah, well, I do want to make a note that um, Joyce did express to me that they feel that maybe the best thing to do would be have be to have no sort of designation at all, to just take a gender designation off of licenses. But in the meantime, um, David Drucker, with again, with the Secretary of State, told me that you can now, as of Labor Day, I believe, you can now go to the Secretary of State and where previously you had to have a doctor's note or a psychologist's note um, verifying that you were um, going to change your de- gender designation on your license. Now you don't have to do that. Now you can go in and just make the change yourself, no questions asked, and that's what will appear on your license. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, what do you think will happen? What I think will happen is... One sec. <laughs> People will have very different ideas about what this is going to do in the future. Like I said, Joyce expressed that having no designation, um, it'd be more beneficial. Maybe something like that, excuse me, something like that would happen in the meantime where they take the designation off of licenses altogether. Um, Again, we're looking at a five-year span of time between now and when this officially is going to go into effect with the designation on licenses. So lots of things, lots of things could happen. There's many changes, new laws could be passed. This could be totally changed by the time we would see it. Right, so is there anything else that you would like to add about this story that we haven't talked about before we wrap up here? Yeah, um, I think that the law, which, um, so Max, Bever, uh, with the ACLU of Illinois, he expressed to me that this law in general is really a, it just reflects that there's like a growing acceptance of um, people understanding that gender isn't on the binary system. So it's it's a start. It may not be the, the finish, but we are we are inching toward progress here. You can check out Learn's story online, along with many others written by our fantastic staff reporters at the Columbia Chronicle website. Thank you, Lauren, for coming on again. And that's all for this story, but stay tuned for more. And now on to our next story with co-editor-in-chief Alexandra Yetter to give us an update on the current CFAC vote. Hey, Alexandra, thanks for coming in. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, so can you tell us what's going on with CFAC right now? So a couple weeks ago, when summer break was still happening, CFAC members voted on whether to affiliate with the Illinois Federation of Teachers, which is a parent union in in Illinois that helps run um, teachers unions like the Chicago Teachers Union and other ones that are really uh, well known in the state. And um, a lot of members had a problem with this because um, oh, the bulk of part-time faculty were either not in the state or maybe on vacation since it was summer, and therefore they might not have had um, their email alerts on, may not have seen that there was a vote coming up, um, didn't have time to talk to CFAC leadership. They had one teleconference call, which had um, information and some questions that they could ask CFAC leadership about the vote. But um, when... The CFAC members voted. They also found that 
two other issues were bundled into this vote, and that was a dues increase. So that would mean um, part-time faculty members, based on the number of courses they teach, would have to um, pay a proportionate amount of dues based on their salary. So someone teaching um, one class would not have to pay as much as someone teaching, you know, three classes a semester. And um, there was also some constitutional bylaws changes. And um, a lot of the members who I spoke to for this article were concerned that they did not know what the bylaws changes were. They still don't know from what I hear. And um, they were also concerned that the dues increase, they don't know what that money goes towards. So when I spoke to um, the CFAC president, Diana Valera, she um, told me that the dues and the constitutional changes needed to be made um, in that vote because affiliating with IFT requires that, you know, unions are all up to code for federal labor laws. Um, and like one of the constitutional changes was an amendment um, for anti-discrimination. And um, she said it was a really good idea for everything to be up to date. And um, the union did vote to affiliate and therefore voted for um, these other issues as well. And it was 57% participation. And of that 57%, um, something like 70 plus percent voted uh, for the affiliation. Right. So when were CFAC members first informed about this vote? They were informed a few months prior to the vote in August, I believe, um, by email. They were informed by email. And um, CFAC leadership, though, had been discussing the possibility of affiliating for around a year. Um, And uh, that was, I heard that from Diana Valera. Um, So what was their reaction? There were uh, opposing sides of reaction based on um, whether you really supported affiliation or not. Um, On the one side, for CFAC leadership and some steering members and and some um, members, they really like the idea of affiliating because it allows um, some more resources for CFAC members. So <clears throat> if there are any issues like with the, uh, the integrity committee that they have someone to go to above CFAC leadership and that someone would be resources at IFT to settle those complaints and have someone um, also looking out for other members. Um, and then on the other side, there are still members who voted against the affiliation because of, again, the lack of transparency, which has been an ongoing issue from our coverage of CFAC. Um, those members are concerned about um, not knowing constitutional changes, not knowing how it's going to affect the upcoming fall elections. They're concerned about, um, again, what that dues money is going towards and whether um, it's going to go towards IFT or um, to other things that they might not know about. And they're also concerned about um, moving forward, how these changes are going to impact um, members who ha- pay a lot of classes and therefore are going to have up to a like a 300% increase on their dues. Right. So for those who felt as though they didn't have enough time for the vote, mm-hmm. What was their reaction? So what happened was around 60 CFAC members 
signed a petition for CFAC leadership to provide more information and for IFT to hold off on any big changes or, or um, even the affiliation um, being official so that CFAC members would have more time to gather information, have more opportunities to speak with CFAC leadership about the changes, and also to find out exactly what would be changed and how it will affect them. And um, that signature, uh, well, there were 60 signatures on the petition, and it was um, delivered to CFAC leadership and um, IFT after the vote was announced on August 28th. So what effect did the petition have? Um, right now, it's being reviewed by Diana Valera, she told me, um, and the CFAC leadership said that they are going to look into some more of the constitutional changes to review them, um, but a lot of the people who signed the petition feel like it didn't really make an impact. I know we have um, one CFAC member told us that if the union doesn't recognize these 60 people's concerns, that it's concerning for solidarity and unity within the union. And why is that? Because um, because members don't know how many people are in the CFAC union. Those 60 voices could be a majority. They're most likely not, but they could be a majority. And um, that means that CFAC leadership would be um, considering a large portion of the of the union's concerns. So how much do the dues change? So uh, for all members, it will be a 2.5% increase. But um, depending on how many courses you're teaching, that's going to vary a little bit. So from what we saw in a table with the petition, um, and then um, we later confirmed the percentage increase with CFAC leadership, uh, the 2.5. Um, but from that table, we see that a professor who teaches one course per semester and earns around um, $5,600, their dues would increase from the from the $130 they were paying to, after the vote, $140, which would just be an 8% increase. Um, but for faculty members who teach six courses a year, um, who earn around $33,600, they would go from paying $260 before the vote to paying $840 after the vote, which is a 200, 223% increase. Well, thank you, Alexandra, for coming in. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Chronicle Headlines. You can check out all of these stories and more in our print edition, available on campus, on our website, columbiachronicle.com, and our additional coverage on social media. We are at CC Chronicle on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, and The Chronicle on Facebook and YouTube. Chronicle Headlines is made possible with the collaboration of our staff of the Columbia Chronicle and WCRX-FM, Chicago's Underground, under the leadership of the Communication Department of Columbia College Chicago, Suzanne McBride, Chair. This episode of Chronicle Headlines was produced and hosted by Yasmin Shika and Blaze Mesa.